This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. All right, so Jeff, are we ready to ready to roll on this? Yep. So I'm going to ask you questions about uh, the doctrines of grace in pastoral ministry. Is that the that's the plan? Welcome to Theology on the Go. I'm your host, Jonathan Master. Over the past few weeks, we've been discussing the doctrines of grace, or what are sometimes called the five points of Calvinism. We've had five guests in to speak about each of those. Sometimes these points are signified by the acronym TULIP, Total Depravity, Unconditional Election, Limited Atonement, Irresistible Grace, and Perseverance of the Saints. Today, what we'd like to do is to discuss all of these things in the context of ministry on the ground. And so there is there is no one I enjoy talking to more about pastoral ministry and a and the occasional hockey game than <laughs> my friend uh Jeff Stuyvesant. Jeff as as our listeners will no doubt know is the pastor of Grace Reformed Presbyterian Church in Gibsonia, Pennsylvania. He has a PhD from Westminster Seminary. He is an author. He has a, a huge hand in Place for Truth. And so, Jeff, great to talk with you as always. It's great to talk to you, Jonathan. And you forgot uh, Penguins fan, who I might add are the top of the Metropolitan Division. Yeah, I omitted that. I didn't. I didn't want to hurt your credibility right out of the right out of the gate. I wanted to give everyone the open opportunity to just hear your arguments and take them at face value. Uh, I appreciate that. Thank you. All right, Jeff. I'm going to jump right in to okay. the doctrines of grace. We're moving. We're moving away from hockey for a moment. All right. So. We've been talking about the doctrines of grace for the last five weeks here on the program explicitly, but they're always kind of hovering in the background. I'm wondering how they function in your own pastoral ministry. Are these doctrines that you explicitly and actively preach and teach, or are they just kind of in the background of of all the other things you preach and teach? In other words, if I were to take someone from your congregation who's been there for a number of years, sitting under your ministry, are these things they would be able to articulate? Would they think of them as, as the core, or would they just sort of have them infused into their uh, thinking and reading of the scriptures? Yeah, I, I like that. I like that distinction. Well, I think I would describe it in this way. I think there are guys who, who come at the text, and, and when they're going to give a sermon, they announce, I'm going to speak on justification today, and and then they get to that doctrine through the text. And that's not quite how I do it. I will announce the text, and and then I think it needs to be brought out of the text. And it needs to be inserted into the, you know, the sermon at the appropriate point and, and made to connect with the other things that the text is doing. So I think it's in the background, but it needs to be brought into the foreground, as, as I guess the best way to say it. And that's how I try to do it. I try not to to announce I'm going to I'm going to talk about justification and then make the text serve the the point. So you, you uh, it does it does. So you're always trying to make it clear that these things are derived from the text of Scripture, and and so that's how you're going to frame everything 
um, whether it has to do with the doctrines of grace or like or other doctrines like justification, which you just which you just mentioned. Yeah, yeah, and and I think that really does. I think that the homiletic aspect of what I'm doing matches then the exegetical aspect. Not not that it needs to in one sense. I mean, when you're doing homiletics, it there's a sense in which the homiletic has to take its own shape as long as it's within the boundaries of the text. But I think there's a little bit of freedom that one can take when one is is you know making points out of the exegesis and um, turning them into a sermon. I think that's the I think that's the better way to go. I think it's the more natural approach rather than to, you know, always feel like you're preaching through a systematic theology text every Sunday. How, how about you? When you when you go, I mean, here you are. You're a professor, and when you go to to preach in another pulpit, do you, is that a temptation for you, or are you more? What are what do you do? Well. I think what I do is similar to what you do, at least what I try to do. Um, I don't generally preach sermons where I come right out at the beginning and say this is going to be on the doctrine of whatever. I think what what I always am focused on doing is teaching the Bible and making sure that the doctrinal points that are brought up, which need to be brought up. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm not in any way trying to avoid systematic discussions but Absolutely. but I, I I want those all to arise from the text of scripture. The only exception to that would be maybe if if there were an invitation extended where a, a congregation said, you know, we want you to come and preach on this. So for instance, pretty recently I was invited to preach on Reformation Sunday at a church and the pastor of the church totally was it was exactly what i expected he said to me listen we want you to preach on and then he stated a kind of key reformation doctrine and so that might be the exception but even there what i sought to do was to say all right let me choose a text Mm -hmm. that will um, make this clear and then and then we can sort of go from there so i i try to approach it in my preaching the same way that you've that you've described yeah, yeah, and I think that you know, with with the uh, division that often one detects between the New Testament department, say, and the systematic department, I think that's a healthy way to go. It brings a natural connectedness to those two departments in the pulpit that I think is 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 there. I I, I completely agree. I think I think you need both. Yeah. Now, now I want to switch gears, Jeff, and ask you this: uh, Moving from preaching to personal work with individuals, as you begin to teach people and you begin to instruct them doctrinally, whether they're new believers or people who are new to your church, maybe they've been brought up in a in a church setting that that doesn't emphasize some of these doctrines that we've been talking about. How have you found people responding to these teachings? So, if you sit mm-hmm. down and you talk to someone about the depravity of man because of Adam's sin or or the irresistibility of God's grace in drawing us to himself or any of these things, how do you find people generally respond? 
Yeah. You know, I think that I handle that in the same way I handle the preaching. In other words, when I sit down with someone, I, I begin to talk to them about the concepts that are in Scripture that will be applicable to their life. You know, I mean, when I when I talk to somebody about sin, I don't necessarily say, I want to talk to you about total depravity. I say, Let, let's talk about the human condition for a minute. Let's see if we can agree on where we are in terms of our place before God as sinners, as, you know, as people who are separated from him. And so then, you know, I begin to talk to them about, you know, the, the maybe the Ten Commandments or maybe we go to someplace in Scripture and so I let those things come out of the text. And I think maybe at that time in the conversation, I'll say, well, you know, theologically, that's this. But maybe not. You know, maybe that's maybe that's further down the line. But, Jonathan, I want to tell you this story that, because this is this is just absolutely I, I smile every time I think about this. When I was back in pastoring a, a community church, I took over the, the, the adult Sunday school soon after I, I arrived and they were using a quarterly and in about two or three weeks I said let's get rid of the quarterly and let's let's think about what the Bible teaches and and so I started with the five points of Calvinism now back then I didn't let them come out of the text I just started teaching the five points of Calvinism and it was such a, a an experience I'll never forget because the people hated it but they would go out and they would tell other people you can't you can't believe what this guy's teaching us in in Sunday school and they would, their friends would actually come to Sunday school because they couldn't believe that there was actually a guy teaching this sort of craziness. <laughs> and actually, the church grew because of the Sunday school. I sometimes had a, a, an enormous Sunday school, and and that's how the church grew. It was just crazy. But it's one of the most <laughs> delightful memories that I have because it was almost growth because of, they were so repelled by it. <laughs> They were showing up for this freak show, this yeah. guy who's actually teaching Calvinism. Wow. Do that you, is something. I didn't know that. I know. Now do you when you get invited, do you often get invited to, to churches that are that are reformed where you feel comfortable bringing these things up pretty naturally, or do you often get asked yourself, you know, what what was that all about? I don't really get that response, I have the privilege of being able to speak at a wide variety of different churches, some of which would be, you know, reformed in their thinking very explicitly, and some maybe mm. are, but it's implicit, and, and, and some that, that are not. So I think that's where I lean on what we were just talking about earlier. I, I try to go into any situation that I'm in and simply teach the text of Scripture. Out of that yeah. arise certain doctrines, but I think I focus on the text. So what I do find is I, I haven't found people responding in that way, saying, where'd you get that from? That's crazy. How could you preach that here? What I, in fact, get is is more people saying, not really quite recognizing what's just happened. In, in other words, in mm. other words, they're not thinking of it as a, a sermon that had to do with total depravity or a sermon that had to do with any of the other sort of Calvinistic distinctives, they think of it as a Bible sermon. And I so I think what happens is, you know, Christians, if they're real Christians, I believe want to hear God's word and are fed by God's word and are changed by God's word. And oftentimes that happens even when they may or may not recognize the ways in which their categories are changing and the precise labels to place on 
those new categories that they now have. But the truth resonates with them. It's the spirits bringing them nearer to his own word. I, I get it. I get it. Yeah. That's what we're after as preachers. And and that's, I think, what, what I kind of consistently try to focus on, whatever type of church I'm in. Now, let me let me turn the table a little bit, Jeff. You, um, as a as a working pastor, have opportunities for evangelism. Some of which are, you know, you seek out, and then some that just sort of come seem to come to you. And I know that you've been involved in church planting, which often involves significant evangelistic work. How have these doctrines affected your understanding and practice of evangelism? And I ask this for a particular reason because, as you well know, one of the criticisms that's leveled against you know, I'll, I'll just use the term Calvinism again. One of the um, criticisms that's leveled against that is, well, there goes your evangelism. You'll have no evangelistic fervor, no concern for the lost, no ability to offer the gospel freely. So I, how have these actually affected your practice of evangelism? Yeah. Well, you know, um, I remember being an Arminian and – and reading Second Timothy chapter two verse ten, where where Paul says, "I endure everything for the sake of the elect," and I remember reading that, thinking to myself, "If even if I were a Calvinist, this verse would drive me to be zealous for the for the gospel, and it should drive every Calvinist to be zealous for the gospel." Even when I was an Arminian, I, I had that sense that a Calvinist ought to follow the scriptures in this, and so when I converted to Calvinism. That verse stuck with me, and I also had good teachers. I had a friend who owned the gospel bookstore, and he put good biographies in my hand, biographies like uh, George Whitfield and others who were zealous for the gospel and yet Calvinists. And so I would say that, that Calvinism never diminished my zeal for sharing the gospel, but i tell you what it did do. It gave me a confidence. It gave me a zeal without the the mental stress that I think came with an Arminian gospel, you know, that sense of did I say did I say it right? Did I did I put it well enough for this person to understand? You know, the blood is on my head, you know, because perhaps I didn't articulate it well enough, that sort of thing. So I, I never you know, becoming a Calvinist was so freeing because there wasn't there was the zeal without all the anxiety, you know. I think it, it brought a freedom to the conversations I had with people. And, you know, the fact of the matter is I the summer I became a Calvinist, I, I sort of did things a little bit backwards. The summer I became a Calvinist, I was still in college, I became a, uh, a minister in a community church. And, you know, in that very summer, we were out going door to door and sharing the gospel. And then when I've church planted, that's what we've done. And... Um, you know, just going out, whether it's uh, on cruise night and sharing the gospel in the city or going door to door, it brings a freedom. The, the, a Calvinistic understanding of the gospel and the sovereignty of God brings a, a joy to sharing the gospel that I don't think I had prior to that. Now, you talked a little bit about your journey, that, that you weren't you didn't always hold these convictions. And I'm wondering, what were some key books or key you talked about the owner of this bookstore pointing in the right direction what were some key books or some key passages of scripture that kind of changed your thinking on the the nature of humanity the nature of sin the nature of salvation 
Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, you can probably guess some of the standards were like Romans 9 and and 1 Peter 2, 8, Proverbs 16, 33, you know, the the heart of the king is, oh, no, no, that's 21, 1, the, the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord, he directs it like a water course, but 16, 33 is, you know, the, the, the die, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the hand of the Lord, those kind of, those kinds of texts always plagued me, but I'll tell you what it was for me, um, I was reading, I was actually reading a book called The Grace of God and the Will of Man. It was an, it was edited by Clark Pinnock. And I remember, I remember reading those articles and I was sitting in the parking lot at college and I was, I was thinking to myself, if I want to remain consistently and academically Arminian, I have to give up something about God's very nature in order to preserve my understanding of human freedom, which was libertarian uh, freedom at the time. And I I remember having, it was a very clear moment for me, I was just unwilling to give up anything about God that would demean his glory or make him less than the God he is. And so right there and then I said to myself, I I have to change. I can't be an Ar- Arminian any longer. And I, I became a Calvinist. So that was kind of the changing point. That's interesting. So you were actually reading something written from the other side, and and yeah. that's what that's what forced the change in in your thinking. What about now? What books do you put in people's hands? What what books have you and your congregants found to be most useful in in understanding these things? You're not giving them Clark Pinnock and saying, "I hope you end up believing the opposite of this." <laughs> um, so what 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 do you find useful? Yeah, you know, Michael Horton's book, Putting Amazing Back into Grace, has been one of those helpful standard books that has helped me early on uh, put a framework of Calvinism together. Sinclair Ferguson's The The Christian Life is a nice systematic treatment, but but pastoral, um, that's helped me to think through systematic theology from that Calvinistic perspective. So, you know, those are some books that have been been helpful to me. David Steele is another one, nice nice little summary of the five points of Calvinism, things like that. But how about you? What when you have incoming freshmen who may may not know what Calvinism is, what do what do you guys give them? Well, we're all you know, coming from slightly different perspectives on this. So it's not, um, there's not a unified effort to necessarily gotcha. point people in a certain, point incoming students in a certain direction. So what I would say though is if a, stu- if a student comes and asks me which books were influential in kind of helping me understand these things in a different way, mm. um, the ones that come into my mind, and I still recommend them to students. Are a lot of things written by James Montgomery Boyce were very influential in my life um, at the stage when I was thinking these things through. A little later on, I think a little after I had already changed in my thinking to this sort of direction in every area. Because to be honest, for me, the, the I, I I was raised in broadly Calvinistic circles from the beginning and trained in those circles too but I think the the issue at in my mind had to do with the extent of the atonement but I do remember some helpful books by Dr. Boyce he's written two really good books whatever happened to the gospel of grace and and then one that deals directly with these five points whatever happened to the doctrines of grace that I thought were really excellent summaries 
Also, this sounds a little strange, but another book that was really helpful for me when I was thinking these things through was The Forgotten Spurgeon by Ian Murray, um, where he talks about who Spurgeon really was and what his what was at the doctrinal core of his life and ministry and, and what kind of fruit that bore in his life. And that became really helpful. And I still put the forgotten Spurgeon into students' hands. I still point them in the direction of James Montgomery Boyce's work. And then, of course, you know, the list could go on from there. Sure, sure. Yeah. Well, Jeff, this has been a treat as always. You know, I have some relatives out in the Pittsburgh area, so I can't – I probably wouldn't be right for me to say you're my favorite Penguins fan, but you're right there (laughs) – in the top, and you're you're my favorite Penguins fan that I'm not related to directly by blood, and so it's always good to talk with you, and and I look always forward good to, to doing with you, soon. Jonathan. <laughs> All <laughs> right, I Jeff. want you to know something, Jonathan. It's wonderful that that a Penguins fan and a Flyers fan can get along as well as we get along. That's just a testimony to grace. It, it is a testimony <laughs> to grace. Exactly. That's exactly right. All right, Jeff. Take care. You too. Thank you for listening to Theology on the Go. I hope that you have learned and grown through this exploration of the doctrines of grace. Just for listening, we would like to offer you a free gift. We have a limited number of copies from our friends at Crossway of Whatever Happened to the Doctrines of Grace. It's co-authored by James Montgomery Boyce and Philip Graham Riken. If you're interested in that book, if you'd like us to send you a copy, we have, as I said, a limited number, but you can enter your name to receive a copy on Place for Truth. Dot org, which is also the home site for Theology on the Go. And thanks again for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. Mm-hmm.